You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation. It's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die-hard Georgia fans in the country. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA podcast. I'm your host, Tyler, and I am back. I am back in the great state of Georgia, back in the classic city. It was awesome to get away for a little while and kind of recharge the batteries, but I am back. And it is time to hit the ground running, going 500 miles an hour, previewing the 2022 college football season. Which, I mean, guys, it's crazy to think about this. It really is. It's, I guess, kind of snuck up on us, but it's now just a month away from kickoff. And I figured... What better way to kick off this stretch run to the new season than by bringing back the most popular series that we run each and every offseason, which, of course, is our annual Summer Scouting the Enemy series. We've run this series, I mean, guys, seriously, going back eight years, every single year in the eight-year history of this podcast. So those of you who have been with us for a while, you know by now. You know what this series is all about. You don't need me to tell you that. But for our newer listeners, and I know you're out there, with this Scouting the Enemy series, what we do is we go down Georgia's football schedule, top to bottom, and we preview each Power 5 team on the schedule. But it's not just any old preview. I mean, I know previews this time of year, they're a dime a dozen, right? These, at least I feel like, the the mission, the goal, is for them to be a little bit different. Our mission on these episodes is to bring you the most in-depth preview of each of Georgia's Power 5 opponents that you're going to find anywhere on planet Earth. I know that all of you out there listening to this podcast today, I know you all have a PhD in Georgia football. That's not up for debate. You're experts in the field of Georgia football. But with these episodes... I want to help you maybe minor in some of the other teams that we are going to be playing over the course of this rapidly approaching 2022 football season. I want you guys to know more about every team on our schedule, more about the personnel, the matchups, the storylines, the numbers, all of those things. I want you to know more about every one of these teams than the average Georgia fan. I want you to be able to own the water cooler conversation, to put your buddies to shame when you guys are talking Georgia football over the next couple of weeks, 
But more than anything, as cool as it is to be the guy in your friend group or gal in your friend group who knows more about the dogs than the, and our opponents than anyone else you know, as cool as that is, as great as that feels, what I really want to do more than anything is just enhance your enjoyment of the season as much as possible. And I do believe, I'm a firm believer, that the more knowledge you have about the sport, the teams, the players, the more you are able to enjoy it. So that's what we're going to try to do today and throughout the next month and a half leading into the 2022 football season. Up first, of course, if we're going down the schedule, is the Oregon Ducks, Georgia's week one opponent in the Chick-fil-A kickoff classic in Atlanta. And I will tell you everything you need to know about Oregon in just a minute. But I do want to remind you again about my brand new national college sports podcast, Never Graduate. Glory UGA is not going anywhere, guys. You hear me here today. I'm coming back week after week. This is not changing. There is no way in hell that I'm giving up Glory UGA. I know there is a little bit of concern out there among some of you. I got some DMs, but trust me, the Glory UGA podcast is here to stay. In fact, Charlie, myself, Curtis, we have some really cool ideas that we're going to be trying to roll out here over the next couple of weeks and throughout the 2022 football season on into next offseason. I don't even even want to think about that right now, but when you run a podcast, you got to kind of think ahead a little bit. So we have a lot of great ideas, a lot of great things coming your way. So this podcast going nowhere, I promise you. Really, I'm just a part of two podcasts now. That's that's it. I'm bringing you double the content that I was before. Of course, on this podcast, you know what we do. We're still going to bring you the most consistently in-depth coverage of Georgia sports anywhere out there. And then I'll never graduate. I'm bringing you the same brand of hardcore in-depth sports talk just on a broader scale. I'm broadening my horizons and covering the national college sports landscape because obviously I'm a Georgia guy. That's who I am. That's my identity. That's what I live and breathe. But I also just love college football. I love college sports, and it's nice to have a forum where I can talk about other teams, other programs, other things going on in the world of college sports that I'm into and that I think you guys are into as well. Because again, if you're listening to this show, I know that you are a hardcore college football fan. We are now... Two full weeks and four episodes into this new podcast, Never Graduate. And to be entirely honest, guys, I've been blown away by the early response and support. I know you guys are a massive part of that. It's a lot like when we started Glory UGA. It's a long time ago now, but I remember those days vividly, fondly now, not so fondly at the time. But actually, it was fun. It was fun trying to build something from nothing, from scratch, and kind of just grind away and, and make it work through really sheer willpower. And that's kind of where I find myself now here would never graduate. When I was first given the opportunity to put this podcast together by our distribution partners, I said yes immediately and very enthusiastically because this is something I've always wanted to do. But like Glory UGA, when we started all those years ago, I wasn't sure if like even 10 people would listen to it. Like, does anyone care what I have to say? But you guys are incredible and the support is greatly appreciated. But I also know there's a lot of you out there that still have not had a chance to check it out, which is okay. I know life is busy. A lot of you are on vacation. I myself just got back. Things are going 100 miles an hour here while you can try to get in some time with the family and and chill out before the football season starts. I get it. But time is running out, guys. There's really not that much time before the new season kicks off. So go ahead, give it a shot, add it to your college football, your college sports podcast rotation and soak in a whole new level of preparation for the 2022 football season. I mean, look, guys, I know 
that you love Georgia football. I know that's where your heart is, obviously, mine too, but don't you love college football in general? I mean, come on, you know you do, right? You do. So just give it a shot. What do you have to lose? Honestly, worst case scenario, it sucks, okay? That's the worst case scenario. It sucks. You never have to listen to it again. But best case scenario, you might have just found your new go-to national college sports podcast, and that's the beautiful thing. But Bottom line, if you enjoy this podcast, I am very confident you will enjoy Never Graduate. Again, it's the Never Graduate College Sports Podcast. You can follow the pod on Twitter and on Instagram. Twitter is at NoGradPod. And any Glory UGA listener who leaves a five-star rating and review for Never Graduate will get a shout-out on both podcasts. And more importantly, you will also get my eternal gratitude. But all right, the Oregon Ducks. Let's do this. Now, I got to admit, to start things off today, I've got to admit, guys, this was a tough one to prep for because there are so many moving parts and just honestly so many unknowns when it comes to Oregon's 2022 football team. You got a new head coach. You got a new offensive coordinator who also, by the way, has never called plays before in his life in Kenny Dillingham. You got a new defensive coordinator, a new quarterback that we all know very well in Bo Nix, a ton of transfers out of the program, a bunch more transferring in, just a lot of unknowns with this Oregon football team heading into 2022. There's just not. There's not much concrete info that we know about this team. I mean, even going back and watching all their games from last season, it's not like I could glean that much from it. I still did it. I still went back over the past three or four months and dove into this with a fine-tooth comb and watched every single game they played last year. But I have to admit, while I was sitting there doing that, in the back of my mind, I was thinking, am I just kind of wasting my time here? Like, how much this actually is going to be transferable to this year's Oregon team? I mean, I was able to get a good feel for their returning players. I, I do value that. I think that was beneficial. But so many of those guys that I was watching over the past couple of months, they either graduated or they transferred and they're being replaced by guys that either didn't play much for Oregon last year or just weren't even on the team at all. Gone is quarterback Anthony Brown. That dude's out. Gone are Travis Dye and CJ Verdell, their top two running backs from last year. Travis Dye was the Pac-12 leader in yards from scrimmage. He's out the door. He's now in LA at USC with Lincoln Riley. Gone is Devin Williams, their top receiver from last year. Gone is Kayvon Thibodeau, their top pass rusher who was a first-round draft pick. Gone are Veron McKinley and Mikhail Wright in the secondary. There are a lot of impact players from their 2021 team that did make a, a run to the Pac-12 championship game where they did get punked by Utah for the second time in one season. But they were a good, solid team last year. But most of those guys that were making an impact on that team, their their biggest impact players, they're not with the program anymore. And then schemes, we're talking about schemes. That was what I had the toughest time watching. That's where I mean, I, I was I watched all those games because I did want to see the personnel and get a better feel for them, but schematically, I hardly even pay attention to what they were doing. I mean, I did because I just love football, but there's just no carryover from what they did schematically last year to what they're going to do this year, really offensively or defensively, because none of those coaches are still on staff. It's an entire new staff. It's a complete turnover. So for that reason, on this particular episode, I'm not even going to bother giving you any stats from last year. Those of you who, who are familiar with these episodes, have been with us for a while, you know I go stat heavy. I really try to give you a detailed look at how good each of these teams were last year from a statistical standpoint and from an eye test standpoint. 
Today, I'm going to re- rely almost exclusively on the eye test because statistics from last year, like what relevance do they hold at all? Like I, I don't think there's any relevance to those numbers whatsoever when you're trying to project forward to this season because, again, so many new players, entirely new coaching staff, new schemes. In this isolated case, I just don't really think those numbers give you any insight. So if that's the case, I'm not going to sit here and waste your time giving you a bunch of random numbers that aren't going to matter whatsoever when we teed up against Oregon week one. Not going to do that. So yeah, a lot of unknowns to this team, but there are some things that we do know. So let's let's go there. Here is what we do know about this Oregon football team. Obviously, off the top here, Dan Lanning is their new head coach. This is a guy that we know intimately. He was our defensive coordinator for the past couple of years, helped mold our defense into one of the truly elite defenses of all time. And he earned himself a head coaching job at one of the premier programs in the country. I think it's fair to call Oregon that, right? I mean, I know they haven't been relevant like the, in the playoff conversation the past couple of years. I guess they, at times they were last year. They spent a portion of the season last year inside the top 10. So they were at least in the conversation. But they haven't been in that picture in terms of actually making the playoff. But Oregon is a brand. They're certainly a brand in the landscape of college football. And I would put them up there in one of the top 10 to 15 premier programs in the country. So for a first-time head coach, this is a hell of a job for Dan Lanning. I'm happy for the guy. He did the work, and he absolutely earned this. So with our familiarity with Dan Lanning, we have a pretty good idea of what their defense is going to look like schematically. At least you would think that we do. I will say what we don't know is how he's going to adapt to his personnel that he has on hand in Oregon and how he's going to deploy that talent. Because that's one thing I'm going to give Dan Dan Lanning a lot of credit for is his ability to adjust. Him and Kirby Smart, it's not just Dan. Like Anything that we do, do defensively, it's not just Kirby. It's not just Dan. It's not just Schumann. It's not just Mushroom. It's all these guys. We have a great brain trust, a collective brain trust on the defensive side of the ball. But obviously, as the defensive coordinator, he did have the biggest impact on what we were doing schematically. And one of the things that I was so impressed with, not just last year, but the past couple of years, is our willingness and ability to adapt to what offenses are doing to attack us, to the talent that we have on hand. Because, and that impresses me for a couple of reasons. Number one, the willingness. A lot of coaches are so stubborn, guys. They're so set in their ways. You know that, guys. I mean, most of you played football. You've been around the game. You know how some of these coaches are just so stubbornly set in their ways, and they will not change. They're going to do what they do, run what they run, come hell or high water. And eventually, the game passes those coaches by. So you have to have the willingness. You have to be humble enough to say, you know what? There's maybe a better way. What I've always done isn't working. I've got to go figure out a way to counteract what offenses are doing. You have to have that willingness, number one. And I want to give Dan Lanning and the rest of our coaching brain trust credit for that. But that alone is not enough. The willingness is a prerequisite, but you also have to have the ability to understand how you need to adjust and what you need to adjust and to devise schemes to make those adjustments work and also factor in the personnel that you have on hand. In case in point, what I talked about with one of our scheme theme episodes, we made one major adjustment last season. Now we made several adjustments, but probably the most impactful adjustment that we made defensively is activating our inside linebackers and pressuring the quarterback. 
we used our inside linebackers to pressure the quarterback more than we ever have in the history of the University of Georgia, in Kirby Smart's history as a head coach, in Dan Lenning's history as a defense coordinator. Why did we do that? Because we realized, number one, there is a deficiency. We identified an area that we need to get better in, and that was rushing the pass or creating havoc affecting the quarterback. We knew we had to get better there. There had to be a willingness to do something to improve that aspect of what we did defensively. And then number two, we did that because we looked at our personnel and said, okay, how are we going to create more pressure? Why are we not able to get the pressure that we want? And one of the things we realized is we're not using the best blitzers, the guys who are most adept at getting to the quarterback and pressuring the quarterback on our defense. We're not utilizing those guys enough. So let's change that. And what did you see right off the bat last year, week one, in Charlotte against Clemson? You saw N'Kobe Dean. You saw Quay Walker. You saw Channing Tindall harassing DJ Uyunglele to the point they broke that guy. And we never relented all season long. So we had the willingness, and then we had the expertise and the ability to understand how we needed to go about adjusting those things and correcting those mistakes and utilizing the talent that we have on hand. So yes, my point is we know largely speaking, what Dan Lenning does schematically, because we've seen it up close and personal for the past couple years. Our coaches know that. But what we don't know is how he's going to adjust that scheme this year to fit the personnel he has on hand at Oregon. I do, honestly, if you had to put a gun to my head and ask me, all right, Tyler, what's he going to do? What's the scheme going to look like? I would say it looked pretty similar to what we did last year. I don't know, but that would be my speculation. That would be my guess. And I say that because, you know, we were linebacker driven last year, linebacker and defensive line driven, right? Front seven driven. But they also have two really good athletic linebackers on the inside there, Noah Sewell and Justin Flo. So I imagine they're going to use them to pressure the quarterback in a very similar way to how we used Nicobe Dean and Quay Walker and Channing Tindall last year. They have that kind of athleticism. I don't know if they are as dynamic rushing the passer, if they are the natural pass rushers that some of our guys were. I don't know if they're like that, but they had that athleticism. And those are the two best players in their defense right now. So I imagine he's going to find a way to feature them. And let's talk about those guys a little bit more here. Noah Sewell. You guys probably remember that name from recruiting. I was drooling over this guy a couple of years ago because he's an absolute freak of nature on the defensive side of the ball. He is a monster in the middle. I mean, this guy is 6'2", 260, and he runs like a 4'5", right? It's insane when you think about the size, speed, athleticism combination of Noah Sewell. That package, all of that together in that package, in that frame, it's it's really honestly unheard of. You do not see people that look like him that move the way that he does. I mean, it's a lot of the same things that we were saying about a guy like Jordan Davis, very similar with Noah Sewell. Guys that are built like that aren't supposed to move the way that he does, but he does. And what that means when you're that big and you are moving as fast as he does, the force at which you arrive with, with the, at the ball carrier can be overwhelming. I mean, he lights into ball carriers, 260 pounds, but he moves sideline to sideline. Now, one thing with Noah Sewell, as athletic as he is, he's a bigger guy. He's carrying around a lot of weight. So last year, in his first real year of playing college football, endurance was an issue for him. That's one thing I really picked up on right from the get-go when, when doing my film study for Oregon, getting ready for this episode. 
Sewell's fantastic. He's awesome. He flies around the field, especially early in the game. First quarter, this guy's a maniac. He's all over the place. But you get, you know, into the late part of the first half, you get into the fourth quarter, and that dude's sucking wind, man. He is sucking air. Endurance is a problem for him. Now, I imagine they also recognize that, and they're going to get him in better shape this year. But the fact is, when you are that big, and you're carrying around that much weight, and you're moving around as much as he has to as an inside linebacker, endurance is going to be a problem, at least more so than it would if he was like 230 pounds. The other thing that you see when you watch him on tape is that, and this was last year. So again, freshman, first time playing the college level, was a really good player last year, but it it, it seemed like his head was spinning at times. He was hesitant. I don't want to say at times. I mean, he was consistently hesitant attacking downhill and I think that's because he was thinking too much. I and mean, you know that works as paralysis by analysis. When you're thinking too much when you're young and you don't really know the defense as well as you need to know the defense because you just haven't been there long enough, you're thinking so much and it kind of paralyzes you and you don't just fly out there with reckless abandon. And I think that was one thing that hurt him at times last year. It allowed blockers to get up on him at the second level and get their hands on him, kind of wash him out of the play. But again, that's something that you... Th- imagine will come with experience and now in his second full year it's a new system but second full year playing college football understanding how this thing works you imagine he will improve there that is that is one thing that's certainly easily correctable but when I watched on tape last year that was something I really do think hurt him quite a bit and then his running mate inside Justin Flo he got hurt early last year didn't really play all that much but he was another guy just like Sewell same year they both came out of high school same year they're both five stars insanely talented guy, physical freak, not the size, speed, athleticism combo of Sewell, but insanely athletic, fast in his own right. I mean, as a duo, by the time this season ends, we might be looking back saying, yeah, that's the best duo, inside linebacker duo in the country. There's a very realistic possibility that ends up being how people look at these two guys in December. So yeah, I do imagine they will be a featured part of what they do defensively. What exactly is that going to look like? It's just hard to know, guys. I can tell you what Dan Lanning did here at Georgia, but I don't know if that's exactly what it's going to look like week one in Atlanta, because obviously the personnel is a little bit different. They also have a defense coordinator. He's the Kirby Smart now, right? Like He's the head coach, kind of overseeing all this. Obviously, like Kirby, he'll be intimately involved in what goes on with defensive game planning. But Tosh Lupoy brought in as defensive coordinator. He's from the Saban tree. So again, there's some familiarity there. And Lupoy has a lot of the same influences that Lanning had, that Kirby's had. So it, it all kind of aligns with what Lanning knows and what he's done traditionally defensively. But again, I go back to what I said at the outset. It's just an unknown. Like we think that we know, we can think that we know, but do we really know? Do we really? I don't know. I don't know. There's a lot of unknowns there. But let's talk more about the personnel here. So they on the defensive line, I would say they return a good but not dominant interior defensive line. Uh, Popo Amave is, is the best of the of the bunch returning, and he's he's like the line in general. I think he's a really good player. But he was never a dominant force at any point last year. Did some good things, good player, just never really took over games. He's not a Jordan Davis game record, a Jalen Carter game record, Devontae Wyatt game record. He's not shown he's that kind of guy. Now, maybe he turns the page this year. Who knows? Possibly. But all I can go off of is what I saw from him last year, and he didn't show to be that kind of guy. And then on the outside, 
on the edge, rushing the passer, they don't have an obvious replacement for Kayvon Thibodeau, who is now in the NFL, first on draft pick. He only had seven sacks last year. He dealt with some injuries, but he was clearly their premier pass rusher. He was the guy they wanted to put on the edge and affect the passer. So you have to imagine that's going to be one of their top priorities during the fall is figuring out how are they going to rush the passer? Who's going to be that pass rusher? And this is why I'd go back to what I was saying with with Noah Sewell and Justin Flo being used as featured pass rushers, they don't have that obvious edge player, which is one of the reasons that we utilized our linebackers to blitz the way that we did last year to pressure the quarterback. I know that we had Adam Anderson, but he was so light that he just couldn't consistently stay on the field. So we needed guys that could blitz on any given down. That's another adjustment we made last year is we didn't really wait to third down like we had done traditionally. We got after guys first, second, third down, standard downs, passing downs, it didn't matter. We were lighting you up. So in the absence of an obvious answer on the edge, rushing the passer, I really do, again, go back to what I was saying. I do think Noah Sewell, Justin Flo are going to be used heavily rushing the passer, a lot like we used Kobe Dean, Quay Walker, Channing Tindall last year. And then the secondary, Dante Manning. There's another name. Remember that name from recruiting? He's another guy that we recruited very heavily that we were in the in the conversation for. We were in the running for. I really was high on him coming out of high school. Former five-star guy. And uh, he went to Oregon, and he's finally going to get his chance to start at cornerback. He's essentially been a non-factor for the most part until this year, but he's going to get his chance. He's a rising junior, and they need him to take a big step because they're losing both of their starting cornerbacks from last season. He obviously has the prep hype as a former five-star guy, but he just has not made much of an impact at this point. Honestly, it was hard to really prep for him. I knew he was probably going to be one of their starters this year, so I wanted to try to get my eyes on him and kind of get a feel for the kind of player he's been at the college level, but he didn't play a ton last year, at least at cornerback. So it's really hard to say. All we can say is that he was a former five-star guy, highly thought of coming out of high school. He's got that that prep profile, but he's got to now translate it to the college level. And then opposite Manning, they dipped in the transfer portal. It's probably going to be a guy named Christian Gonzalez who played at Colorado last year, transferred over from the Buffaloes, now with Oregon. And I'm going to be entirely honest with you guys. I watched zero Colorado games this offseason because Colorado was one of the worst Power 5 teams in the country last year. They have zero relevance to me whatsoever. And I guess I should take that back some. I did actually watch some Colorado games, but I didn't watch them because of Colorado. So basically, when I was watching Colorado games, like when I watched Oregon play Colorado to prepare for this episode, I was focusing on Oregon exclusively. I was not paying any attention to what Colorado was doing, their personnel, their schemes, because they, again, just have no relevance to me whatsoever. So I can't really sit here and speak from an expert standpoint on how good Christian Gonzalez is, but he's a guy they went into the transfer portal to get, and he's likely going to start opposite Dante Manning at cornerback. And then at star, it looks like Jamal Hill is going to hold on to that job. He was their starter at star last year. It looks like he's going to be the guy again. And then uh, they have a returning starter named Steve Stevens, who's a pretty good player. He's not the rangiest guy. I think he's better run support than he is in pass coverage. I don't think he's the complete liability in pass coverage, but that's not really where he excels. The other guy that projects start at safety, he's more of their coverage guy in the back end at safety. Brian Addison, he's more of a longer, rangier, ball-hawking type safety that's going to sit back there in the middle of the field in those single high looks, and he'll, he'll man up on some guys with that length, and he's the better cover guy, but they have a lot of experience at safety and nickelback. They just don't have as much experience at cornerback. So that's the defense. That's the Oregon defense in a nutshell, and when we get back from the break, 
we'll talk about the Oregon offense where there are a ton of unknowns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Okay, I'm back. Now let's dig into this Oregon offense. Again, like I said, the outset of the episode. There are a ton of unknowns really throughout this entire team, but especially when it comes to the Oregon offense. With the Oregon defense, we we have some familiarity with, with landing. We know who their best players are. We know how good guys like Noah Sewell and Justin Flo are. We know they have some experience in the secondary, or at least the safety position. We know some things about them defensively. Offensively, though, to me, it's it's a complete wild card. And I think it's a wild card because of their new offensive coordinator, Kenny Dillingham. Now, Dillingham, you might not be familiar with this name, but he got this job as the Oregon offensive coordinator because he goes back a ways with Dan Lanning, back to their days at Memphis. And Dillingham's had some actually pretty high-profile offensive coordinator jobs. He was an offensive coordinator at Memphis under Mike Norvell. Then he was the coordinator at Auburn under Gus Malzahn. And he was also, most recently, the offensive coordinator at Florida State, again, under Mike Norvell. But here's the thing with Kenny Dillingham. And here's why, for me, there's so much unknown when it comes to this Oregon offense. Yes, he has been an offensive coordinator. But Kenny Dillingham has never once in his life as a college coach called the plays. He's never been the primary play caller. We know Gus Malzahn is is that guy at Auburn. He tried to give the, the play calling duties a couple times and kept snatching them back because he didn't trust anybody and he just had to have the reins of the offense in his own hands, which I think is smart and that's what got him the job in the first place. Dillingham never called plays at Auburn. Florida State, same thing. Mike Norvell calls plays at Florida State. He called plays at Memphis. Kenny Dillingham learned from these guys was never the primary play caller. And that makes it very difficult to prepare for this Oregon offense because we don't really know what kind of offense he's going to run. I mean, you can look at his influences. You can look back and say, okay, well, he coached under Mike Norvell and Gus Malzahn. So 
put those two together, and what are we looking at? Let's imagine it's some sort of up-tempo spread to run attack that's going to feature a good bit of the quarterback run game, right? Something like that, like a, a, an amalgamation of those two schemes that, that Norvell and Malzahn have run for years and years. You could think that, you can speculate that's what, it, what he's going to run, and, and that would be reasonable. But again, you just don't know. There's no way to truly know. And that is unsettling for me. Someone who likes to be in control and likes to know what he's facing, that's uh, that's a little bit unsettling for me as a fan here trying to prepare for this matchup against Oregon week one. So who are the players that he's got to work with? Because that's, that's really what it comes down to. It's like, how good are your players? Well, I mentioned earlier, we thought we were done with Bo Nix when he transferred out of Auburn, but no, alas, we are not done with Bo Nix. Bo Nix has, has transferred to Oregon. You can probably imagine why. Kenny Dillingham was a former office coordinator at Auburn when Bo Nix was there, so there's a relationship there. There's some trust there, and I would say Nix at this point, he's not guaranteed to be the starter because, I mean, they haven't had fall camp yet, but coming out of the spring, it's looking very likely that he will ultimately end up being the starter at quarterback. Again, there's a trust factor there with him and Kenny Dillingham. You imagine there was some conversation there. I mean, there's, of course, he was not guaranteed the job when he transferred there, but you had to feel like there was an, an open opportunity for him to come in and earn that job, and that's why he transferred there. So Bo Nix, looks like he's going to be the guy. You guys know how I feel about Bo Nix. Honestly, it's very ironic for me. I think it's very ironic that he's now playing for Oregon, given that, remember guys, think about his freshman year, right? His first game at the college level as Auburn's quarterback. It was that game against Oregon. I want to say it was in Houston, if I remember correctly. It was a neutral side game week one. Auburn was playing Oregon, and it was in that game against Oregon, that's where Auburn, like, they had to come back and beat Oregon late in that game. They came back his freshman season, he led a, a comeback that launched the, the extraordinarily fraudulent legend of Bo Nix that I spent the better part of two years on this podcast debunking, at least every time we talked about Auburn and previewed them. Spent a lot of time debunking the Bo Nix mythology until finally, like, so I guess, it, I don't know exactly when the tables turned, but at some point it seemed like early last year, the general college football public finally caught on to it and just gave up on him. But I've been telling you guys that for two years. So you know how I feel about Bo Nix. The guy just was not good at Auburn. He's a career 59% passer in an RPO heavy offense, which what I mean by saying that is that's an offense that features a lot of easy throws for the quarterback. His completion percentage at the very least should have been in the mid 60s, really should have been pushing close to 70% based on how that offense is structured for the quarterbacks. I mean, when he was there, you guys know how he operated. He was a one read and then let's run and play backyard football quarterback. That's who that guy was. That's who he's been his entire career. He had 29 touchdowns to 16 interceptions, 6.6 yards per attempt. That's not going to get it done. Here's what I've always said about Bo Nix. Let me just repeat it one more time for you guys, for the people that have never heard me say this. My whole, the whole crux of my argument with Bo Nix is this. When you only complete 59% of your passes and only 6.6 yards per attempt for your career, something is wrong. And that something is that you just are not very good. Let me explain this. There's one of two ways that you can look at this, right? Generally speaking, if you have a lower 
completion percentage, that's usually because you are taking more vertical shots down the field, right? So what you see often, it's not uncommon at all to see a guy with a lower completion percentage have a much higher yards per attempt average because those vertical shots down the field when your your offense is built around you pushing the ball down the field, those are a lower percentage throws. So it makes sense that your completion percentage would be lower. And then the flip side, if you play an RPO heavy offense, that I hate to use the phrase dinking and dunking, but you get the idea, right? Where you're throwing more short to intermediate routes and you are essentially given one read, you're reading one defender most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time you're reading that one defender and you're throwing the ball based off his leverage to a receiver who should be wide open if you make the correct read. Those are far more high percentage throws than those vertical shots down the field. So it's not altogether uncommon when you see teams like, oh, I don't know, let's say Mississippi State these days. Will Rogers is a good example of this. Really high completion percentage because he doesn't push the ball down the field that much. He runs a lot of mesh routes, a lot of crossing stuff across the middle of the field in the short to intermediate range, but his yards per attempt is not that high. Again, it makes sense. If you throw the ball short and intermediate, higher percentage throws, your completion percentage will be higher, but your yards per attempt are going to be lower. Usually goes one of two ways. Now, if you're a really good quarterback, like what really makes someone an elite quarterback is when you have a really high completion percentage and a really high yards per attempt, which, oh, I don't know, maybe a guy like um, Stetson Bennett, maybe, possibly, that kind of guy. Yeah. I know we're not supposed to say he's a good quarterback, but yeah, that kind of guy. And also a guy like Bryce Young, right? When you're talking about mid 60 completion percentage and you're pushing nine and a half to 10 yards per attempt. Those are elite numbers. That makes you an elite quarterback. Well, Bo Nix sucked at both of them. 59% career completion percentage, 6.6 career yards per attempt. What are we doing? How did this guy keep a job for two years, the two plus years at Auburn, right? Before the injury, I mean, he was going to be a three-year star at Auburn, but he got injured last year and didn't start every game. It baffles me how this guy was able to keep that job. And it baffles me how the national media took so long to figure this out. And that's one of the reasons, you know, another shameless plug here. Another One of the reasons why I wanted to start my own national podcast. I got so tired of just inane, absurd takes and people not realizing who's good and who's not good. It's just that simple. Now, I, I will say in Bo Nick's defense, okay, let's give the guy a break here. All right, I'm sure he's a nice young man. I'm sure, right? He did have different offensive coordinators every year at Auburn. Now, Gus Malzahn was, of course, the the central piece there up until last year. Of course, they make the move. Gus is out, and then you bring in Brian Harson, and then that whole thing just kind of blew up. But it was always the Gus Malzahn offense his first two years. Now, last year, you tried to bring in Mike Bobo, run more of a pro-style offense, which Bo Nick's just not fit to run. That's not really what he's fit to run, which I think is a reason why he's a good fit at Oregon with, with Kenny Dillingham. It probably gives you an idea of the type of offense that they are planning on running. So yes, it was tough for him when you've got guys coming in and out, different quarterback coach, different coordinators. I, I get that. That can be tough. And here's the thing about Knicks, and maybe this is why I'm so hard on Bo Nix, because I think he should be good. When you look at the guy, he has a lot of physical tools. He has a pretty good arm. He's extraordinarily athletic. I mean, his ability to play backyard football and just run the, the oop-de-oop back there is unmatched. I mean, this guy should be good. And when I think you should be good and you're not good, it frustrates me because I don't have that kind of ability. I never did in my life. And I guess I'm jealous of it. Sure, maybe there's an element of that. But it's just frustrating when you watch a guy that's that talented and he's just not good. And with, with Knicks, he just, he never learned how to play the quarterback position. 
That that's really what it comes down to at Auburn. He never learned how to play it. At least not yet to this point in his career. And, and I mean, time's ticking, right? This is his last year. Now, one saving grace for him this year is the familiarity with Dillingham. So it's not a totally new coordinator and a totally new quarterback coach. I mean, it wasn't his guy last year, but there's that familiarity there. But still saying that, I just don't, man. I don't think it's reasonable to expect the light to just suddenly come on magically for Knicks this year. And this be the year he figures it all out and is able to finally tap into all those impressive physical tools. Could it happen? Sure. I mean, yeah, sure. It could happen. Anything could happen. But what have we seen from this guy through three years of college football to suggest to us that it's just going to happen this year? That requires a massive leap of faith. Now, I know that's leap of faith the Oregon faithful want to make because they're fans. That's what fans do. And I don't begrudge them that. That's fine. We do in our own fan base too. That's what fans do. But I really think that's a pretty significant leap of faith there. And then behind him, here's the thing I got. Nick's is probably going to be the starter. I would certainly handicap him as the starter right now, but it's not a done deal because there is a really talented redshirt freshman behind him, a guy named Ty Thompson. I thought Ty Thompson might be the guy for Oregon to start last season. And it was an open competition between him and Anthony Brown. Anthony Brown came in from Boston College a couple years ago and transferred in. And there was an open battle there. Thompson was the prep star, the higher rated guy coming out of high school, but Brown obviously had the experience. Brown ends up winning that job. Uh, allegedly, it was a pretty close battle, but Brown ended up winning. He held on the job the entire season. But with the new staff, I mean, it's probably, I, I do think it's an open competition. I think Lanning is going to be cut from the same cloth as Kirby there and say that we have an open competition all the time at every position. But I, I just, I, I go back to Kenny Dillingham and his familiarity with Bo Nix, the trust factor there, would Bo Nix have transferred to Auburn if he, again, I'm not going to say he was guaranteed the job, but if he was not given a lot of insurances that this is a, a job they can come in and take, you know, uh, let's just put it that way. So Thompson's a talented guy, but I expect it to be Bo Nix. And honestly, you know, from reading and doing research into this, most people around the Oregon program, at least based on the reports that I read preparing for this episode, they are pretty confident that Bo Nix is the guy, which kind of jives what you saw throughout the entire spring. Not a done deal, but seems like Bo Nix is going to be the guy. Thompson was a former top 40 recruit. Um, he's got some dual threat capabilities himself. I don't think he's, he's not really quite the athlete Bo Nix is. I think very highly of Bo Nix as an athlete, but 6'4", 200 pounds, and he's going to be very good for Oregon. I just don't think it's going to be this year, probably more 2023. And then in the backfield, along with them at running back, this is where they really are hurting. They are losing their top rusher in Travis Dye. And let's go out wide too. They're losing their top rusher in Travis Dye, who led the Pac-12 in yards from scrimmage last year, over 1,700 yards from scrimmage, losing him and losing their top wide receiver in Devin Williams. Williams, I think, is more replaceable, but Dye was fantastic, guys. I mean, he was a small, diminutive dude, but he could flat out play. He was explosive. Actually ran with some deceptive power despite the, the size disadvantage. But he was the most productive player on the entire team last year. I mean, again, 1,700 yards from scrimmage, led the Pac-12, 18 touchdowns. It's going to be very difficult to replace that type of production. The guy that's going to be given the, the lion's share of the carries to try to replace that production is a guy named Byron Cardwell, who was on the team last year, got some play, and I, and I was impressed with him when, when I watched him play last year. He's going to be the guy at tailback for them, 
And, and he was good last year. He wasn't, you know, dominant. He wasn't explosive. He didn't jump out of the page at you. But you saw some good things. You saw some signs this guy could be a good running back. He's a rising sophomore. Had a little over 400 yards rushing last year. Only 61 carries, though. It really was. I mean, it was the Travis Dye show for them last year, guys. I mean, he was the offense for them. And Cardwell's bigger than Dye, but he's still not huge himself. I mean, he's only six foot, 200 pounds. It's a good solid size for running back. Uh, runs with solid power, but certainly not the, the explosive threat that Dye was. And at least last year, did not show the ability to be the type of threat in the passing game in the backfield that Dye was. As Dye was dynamic in the passing game, he over 40 yards receiving last year. So Cardwell's going to be the guy. He's fine. He's good. He's not a bad running back. He's, he can make some plays for them. But he did not show any signs of being the type of playmaker that Travis Dye was for the Ducks last year. And then at wide receiver, again, they are losing Devin Williams, who was their top receiver from a year ago. I do think he's more replaceable than Travis Dye was. But um, based off what I saw for them last year, it looks like their number one wide receiver, based off what I saw, this is my projection. No one said this, but this is my projection. I think their number one wide receiver this year is going to be a guy named Chris Hudson. He had 31 catches last year, 419 yards. He's a redshirt sophomore. Smaller guy, 5'11", 170, but... Even though he's small, he's a really smooth route runner. I love those kind of guys. Very elusive with the ball in his hands. Just a really fluid athlete. I think he's going to be their go-to guy out wide, at least to start the season. And then up front, this is the strength of their entire offense. They return almost their entire offensive line. They've got four technical returning starters, five guys with starting experience. And I do think this makes for a very interesting matchup against a Georgia defense that Yes, very, very talented. We know how we recruit, but outside of Jalen Carter, very young and largely inexperienced. I guess just, you could say Jalen Carter and Zion Lowe. Those guys aren't young. Those guys aren't as inexperienced. But outside of those two, a lot of youth, a lot of inexperience up front, and you're going against um, an offensive line that's returning a lot of veteran talent up front. That makes for a very, very interesting matchup. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. All right, so we've previewed the offense, we've previewed the defense, we talk about the players, the personnel, the schemes as much as we can based on what we know, which admittedly is not all that much. So let's kind of wrap this up and let's bring it back and look at this matchup in totality. The spread for this game right now has ballooned all the way up to like 18 and a half points on some sports book. Depending on what sports book you're looking at, it's anywhere from 17 to 18 and a half right now. Personally, to me guys, whether it's 17 or 18 and a half, especially 18 and a half, I've said this before, I'll say it again. That feels like a lot of points to me. It just feels like a lot of points. I get it. We are the more talented team. I'm not disputing that. I'm not sitting here trying to sound the alarm saying, oh my God, guys, Oregon's more talented than us. Watch out. They're not. They are not more talented than us. 
And honestly, even with the losses from last year's team, our national championship team, we're still the more experienced team because they had a lot of turnover on that roster. We are the deeper team because we recruit better. We've been recruiting better for a while now. There's also far more continuity within our program, which I do think matters. We're going into year seven of the Kirby Smart era, which is hard to believe, year seven, but we are. We're heading into year seven. We've got a lot of guys who have been around for a long time. Del McGee's been here from the start. Shu, Glenn Schumann's been here from the start. Trey Scott and Todd Hartley have now been around for a number of years. Todd Munkins going into year three as offensive coordinator. Will Muschamp, I know he's only in year two with the program, but there's a lot of familiarity between him and Kirby Smart. There's a lot of alignment on what they do defensively. So the continuity, clearly that's an edge for us in this game. Our culture, our identity as a program has been firmly established now. We went through those growing pains back in 2016. It hurt, it sucked, but we went through it and we're better because of it. But Oregon, this is their 2016 for Dan Lanning. Brand new staff, first year head coach, just like Kirby Smart, right? Defense coordinator now getting his first job as a head coach in a big time program. They're going to go through some of those growing pains this year. So from that perspective, look at all those things that I that I just ran through there. Yeah, 18 points sounds about right, you know? 18 points, yeah, sure. I mean, we're more talented, we're deeper, we're more experienced, more continuity, our culture established. Why shouldn't it be 18 points? And I and I get that. And, and intellectually, I understand maybe 18 points is right. I mean, last year, we, we, we murdered teams last year. We had the highest scoring margin of any team in the country last year, outscoring teams by an average of almost 28 points per game. So yeah, 18 points, I mean, blowouts were the rule last year, so why would it be any different this year? Intellectually, I get that. But I'm also a fan, and I live and die with every single snap, and this stuff matters to me. It means a lot to me, so I, uh, I get anxiety at times about it, and I get unsettled, and I'm unsettled when it comes to this Oregon team. Not because they're more talented, not because they're deeper, not because they have a better coaching staff, not because they have more continuity, none of those things. It's what I said at the very outset of the episode, the unknown. That is what unsettles me. Yes, we know Dan Lanning. We have that familiarity with him. But like I said, we don't exactly know. We have ideas, and I, I can speculate, but we don't really know exactly how he's going to adapt to and utilize the personnel on hand. How much is he going to have a hand in the actual play calling on game day? I think probably a lot like Kirby Smart does, but maybe he's going to completely turn the reins over to Tosh Lupoy. I think that would be foolhardy of him to do because... His prowess as a defense coordinator is what got him the job in the first place. I don't really understand when coaches, when they get a head coaching job, they give up what made them unique, made them special in the first place to get them the job. I never really understood that. So I don't know. I'm just saying we don't know. There's unknowns there. We don't really have answers. And then offensively, there's even more unknowns. Just very little idea on what the Kenny Dillingham offense is going to look like. I guess you can you can make an educated guess as to what the style will be, but there's just no firm tendencies like there's no film to really watch you can go back and watch when he was coordinator at at at, uh, Auburn and Memphis and Florida State but how much information does that give you because he was not calling the plays there's no real tendencies to operate off of and that kind of unsettles me and then there are some matchups too that I think I mean I don't think there's any match of the Oregon just going to dominate us in but there are some matchups that do give me a little bit of concern, especially along the line of scrimmage. I think that's where Oregon is strongest, offensively and defensively. I think offensively, their strength is the offensive line. Defensively, their strength is the front seven. And again, I'm not saying that this concerns me to a, 
oh my god, we're going to lose level. No, it's more like a, huh, that could be interesting level concern. But it's still a concern nonetheless, because that's where their strengths are. And I'll give Mario Crisball credit. I mean, he didn't get to finish the job or it's by his own choice. He left. He didn't finish the job there, but he was in the process of building out the Oregon roster SEC style, because he's got some roots in the SEC too. You know, he coached with Saban. He's got some influences there. He understands. That's why he's doing such a great job in Miami. He understands the importance of recruiting and recruiting an SEC type roster. And you build those from the inside out. That's what he was trying to do at Oregon. And he made some progress in doing that, but he didn't completely build it out because he left before the job was done. But there's still some good players along both lines of scrimmage for this Oregon football team. And because of that, I think their offensive line and their run game potentially could match up pretty well with uh, a defensive front seven here that's that's inexperienced. Now, again, we have a couple of guys, really two guys on the defensive line with Jalen Carter and Zion Logue who have any kind of significant playing time. Inside linebackers, essentially zero experience. The talent's there. I'm not worried about the talent. I've said that several times this offseason. I'm not worried about the talent. The experience, though, is a concern, especially in week one, early in the season, against a team that is talented. They're not as talented as us, but Oregon has some talented players. You gotta, you gotta think about how many missed assignments are, are there gonna be? How many bad run fits are we gonna have? How, how much are guys gonna be thinking rather than reacting out there when they haven't played that much? Whoever it ends up being at quarterback, whether it's Bo Nix, who I do think it's gonna be, or whether it's Ty Thompson, both those guys give them a run threat, which is gonna stress an, ex, an already inexperienced group of linebackers to an even greater degree. And then defensively, again, like I said, their front seven is by far the most talented part of their defense. That's where their more established playmakers are, especially inside linebacker. So can they limit our run game and then force Stetson to beat us with his arm? Can our young defense replacing all of those NFL dudes stymie their offense enough to where we don't have to try to outscore them with a drop back pass game? These are things kind of running through my mind right now about this Oregon game. And look, we've got plenty of more time to talk about all of these matchups in greater detail as we get closer and closer to the 2022 football season. And trust me, we're going to talk about this a lot more. I want to get Curtis on here, get his take on it as well. But I want to give you some early thoughts and just kind of give you where my head is right now, because that is, that's that's kind of where my head is right now. Those are the thoughts running through my head from a matchup standpoint with this Oregon team. But we'll flesh those out more and more here over the next month and a half leading up to kickoff week one in the ATL against the Oregon Ducks. But all right, guys, that does it for me here today. I'm about to pass out right now. I took the red eye in, and um, needless to say, I am very tired. And I guess I should probably apologize if I was making no sense today, if it was just kind of a nonsensical episode and I was tripping over words. I don't know. I kind of blacked out there because I am that tired. So I hope it was up to our normal standards here on the Glory UJ podcast, but if not, forgive me. Just very tired. Very, very tired. And I still got another podcast to record here. I got to go do the the next Never Graduate episode, which again, check it out. Never Graduate at No Grad Pod. Five-star range reviews. Very much appreciated. Follow us. All those things. Very much appreciated. But thank you for listening, guys. Curtis will be back with me next week. So make sure to check back then. I hope you guys all have a fantastic weekend. I'm probably going to go sleep for 72 straight hours. But I will see you guys next week. Oh, and this is how tired I am. I almost forgot. As always, go dog.